On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On the Way Home. I have one. I am one of your hosts, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, and that's not a great start when I can't even say my own name. But I'm joined, as <laughs> always, by the more talented and um, someone who can pronounce their own name, Stefania. <laughs> well, you pronounce my name very well, Michael. So I really appreciate it. Um, how are you doing today? Good. Good. I think. You know, one of the things we've talked about kind of briefly before we came on is how, um, you know, it's July and how hot it is across uh, Canada right now. And I know in BC, there was a major heat wave that uh, resulted in, in many, many deaths. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, in our sector, a lot of people think, well, hey, winter is the hardest part. Um, you know, if you're experiencing homelessness, winter is tough. Once you made it through that, it's kind of smooth sailing. And that is absolutely not the truth. In fact, um, so many people are affected uh, by, by the heat health-wise, and, and there's a lot of deaths from it as well. Yeah, when the pressure dome hit BC, it was um, at a really bad time because it's kind of the end of the month, um, which is when you see a lot of evictions, a lot of folks uh, being put onto the street. Um, so it was, it was just a, a really bad time um, and really horrible to see how many lives were lost in that time. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that the pressure dome broke, um, but it's kind of scary because it's like, you know, things to come, like it's only going to get hotter our summers. So yeah, just, you know, (laughs) just makes it all the more important that we focus on ending homelessness and getting people in housing where they can go and cool down and they're not out in that kind of suffocating heat. Absolutely. Year round homelessness is happening. We want to put an end to that. We want to prevent that. That is the theme of this show. And to help prevent that, and to end homelessness, people have to have a basic income and a livable wage. And today's guest, Steph, uh, Tom Cooper, is going to tell us all about that. But let me introduce Tom. Uh, he's probably long before this, but in his current position as the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, he's been in this role since uh, 2009. So uh, many years of doing this important work. 
and that's a collaborative organization formed to tackle the city's unacceptable levels of poverty. And I've spent a lot of time in the city of Hamilton, love the city and, and have seen it uh, uh, firsthand. And through the roundtable's work, Tom's engaged governments at all levels to invest in poverty reduction initiatives and work to give people experiencing poverty a voice in the decisions that affect their lives. Absolutely nothing for us without us. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be on. Yeah, we're really excited to have you and, and sort of dig into this. But before we do, um, you know, given uh, Michael noting how long you've been at this, we always like to ask our guests, you know, what, what got you started? How did you get involved in this sector? And if you can take us on that journey a little bit. Yeah, well, for me, I grew up in Hamilton, uh, in central Hamilton, actually, in, in the late 1970s, 1980s. It was steel town back then. All of my friends' dads, my, my uncles, my grandfather, my own father uh, worked in heavy manufacturing, either at a steel mill like DeFasco or Stelco, or in my dad's case at International Harvester. And, and basically back then, you could finish or, or even not finish high school, you know, walk down to the, uh, to the steel plant and have a job by the end of the day. Hamilton was uh, very much that steel town, that lunch bucket town, and the community did really well in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. But in the early 80s, things started to change and those jobs started disappearing. The steel sector shed tens of thousands of jobs as, as prices soared and, and uh, technology changed. And Hamilton joined the ranks of, of some of those other US rust bucket towns, Detroit, Buffalo, Indianapolis, Cleveland. And, and so today in Hamilton, um, those uh, steel mills and, and, and heavy manufacturing employs about a tenth of what they, they used to. There used to be 40, 50,000 people working, working in steel in Hamilton. And now, now it's down to about 4,000 people. And so that led to a significant impact on, on people and, and certainly on the economy. And uh, it, it changed. It changed Hamilton uh, over the last couple of decades. And and when I was when I was young, when I was a teenager, my dad through went through several periods of of unemployment. He was laid off his job. We were fortunate that my mom uh, had a good job at the time, so we didn't struggle as much as some of my friends uh, did uh, in the mid 1980s. But but it was certainly tough all around. And for me, after. Uh, I graduated university. Um, I went to work in, in politics, actually. I, I worked for a, a local member of parliament and I became a political organizer, but I really found my passion um, when I signed on at a uh, local community legal clinic in the East End of Hamilton, McQuiston Legal and Community Services. And I worked there uh, for about 10 years, um, working with uh, justice-seeking groups in the community, helping to organize tenants, associations, fighting for fair social assistance rates. So that's really where I found my passion for poverty reduction. And, that, and then when the opportunity came up, uh, I became director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, Tom, I spent uh, many years in Hamilton. I was uh, working at the Hamilton Downtown Family YMCA. And I remember, uh, I love the core. But it was interesting to me because I had not been in Hamilton in a long time. That was around 2006 that I went there. And I remember uh, the mall that was just from there. When I was a kid growing up in Niagara, we actually used to make trips to that mall. Jackson Square was like the place to be. 
fast, you, you fast forward to 2006 and I went in there and it was a ghost town and, and a very different place. And downtown was a very different place. As you said, it changed. And we saw the impact of, of that change. Um, so I saw it firsthand. We had, we had the highest financial assistance rates at that YMCA in the country. And something I was actually very proud of, right? That, that was our, our mission was to help people. Yeah. Um, so I remember when uh, the, the start of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction came about, but many of our listeners may not. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the organization, why was it formed and what are, the, what are its main objectives? Yeah, our, our, our organization, the Roundtable, came into existence right around that time. And, and in 2005, there was a report that went to Hamilton City Council outlining that Hamilton had the second highest poverty rate uh, for children uh, in, in the entire province. And, and more than a third of, uh, of, of children were growing up in low-income households. And I, I think it really uh, got the community thinking about what needed to be done over the long haul in terms of, of reducing poverty. And, and so the Roundtable was born out of uh, out of really the the impetus of of the Hamilton Community Foundation and the city of Hamilton, who had two fantastic leaders um, who who really organized uh, a number of uh, business people, uh, academics, uh, faith organizations, labor leaders uh, together to really look at what uh, we could do as a community to tackle poverty in 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 a realistic way. Um, there were lots of fantastic organizations in Hamilton, uh, like the Y, uh, like, uh, like food banks, like, uh, like shelters doing absolutely fantastic work. Um, but they were dealing with crises uh, after crises, uh, helping people really um, uh, trying to get back on their feet or, or just protecting them from falling into a chasm uh, of what poverty was. And so there wasn't a group in the community that was able to look at the big picture issues around income security, around stabilizing lives. And, and so that's really where the roundtable came from. Uh, it was, it was a, uh, an organization that was established to build relationships, uh, break down silos, try to find a way for organizations to collaborate and, and really look at the problem of poverty reduction from a systems change level. Uh, when I took over uh, the roundtable as director, uh, working with a fantastic staff and, and, a, and a great group of, of, of volunteers, um, we decided to sort of drive a, a few critical pieces of, of political advocacy. One was around income security uh, in, in terms of ensuring people had enough to live on, because when we did crunch the numbers, it was really uh, people who were living on provincial social assistance programs who were living in the depths of poverty, who, who were truly suffering. Um, and there were about 50,000 people in Hamilton, uh, either on Ontario Works or the Ontario Disability Support Program, who, who, who just weren't able to, to escape that, uh, that cycle of poverty. There were also a lot of people who were going to work, doing all the right things, uh, maybe working two or three part-time jobs, but not earning enough at those jobs uh, to pull themselves or their families out of poverty. Um, so really our focus became uh, trying to fix income security, uh, trying to create a living wage community. 
But encompassing all that was really the trying to build opportunities for people experiencing poverty to have a voice in the decisions that affected their lives. So uh, we created a speakers bureau of, of low-income community members who could talk directly uh, to politicians at the local, at the provincial, at the federal level to really tell them uh, what changes were needed. Well, that's that's an amazing reason to start the roundtable and to ensure that there's that uh, lived experience or first voice, you know, um, at the table. Because I think it, it's, it's such an incredible asset to have at any table uh, where solutions are being discussed. So... Um, you know, you and the Roundtable have been really big supporters and advocates for a basic income in Canada. And for people who might not know or understand what a basic income might be, can you walk us through it um, and why you think uh, a BI is so important to ending poverty? Yeah, absolutely, Steph. I, I think at its heart, basic income is a, a cash transfer from the government to citizens. Um, it needs to be adequate to enable people to, to meet their needs. Um, such as housing and food and, and, and personal supplies, but, but also be able to participate in society. Um, and, and a basic income isn't dependent on work status. So you get it whether you're working or not. Um, and there's a few different types of, of basic incomes. Um, there's probably as many types of, of basic incomes as, as there are, are people who talk about it. But um, the two main types are, are kind of an, a negative income tax model, which is what we tried in Ontario. We piloted in Ontario. And, and there's also a demigrant model, which is more of a universal basic income where everybody in society gets a certain amount, let's say $2,000 a month, and then it's taxed back from, from higher income earners. Um, I, for me, basic income was a really important conversation to have uh, because as I had mentioned, we'd seen so many people uh, in our community trying to live on woefully inadequate rates of social assistance. Right now, as, as both of you know, um, there's no rational determination for, for setting social assistance rates. So, so a single person on Ontario works in, in, in our province today gets $733 to live on. Um, but that doesn't come anywhere close to meeting what people need uh, in terms of being able to afford housing and food and, and all the other essentials you have in, in your life, let alone being able to participate and, and have any semblance of a social life. It, it's just impossible. Even the most modest uh, rental accommodations, a bachelor apartment today in Hamilton rents for hundreds of dollars higher than somebody gets on social assistance. So the numbers have never added up and they've never been able to enable uh, people on the system to live with any sort of dignity so they can break that cycle of poverty and, and move on with their lives. I really saw basic income as, as an important conversation starter to talk about adequacy and, and how we need uh, to provide everybody with that foundational level of income support uh, so they can uh, really achieve what they need to in their lives and, and break free of, of what really has become a broken, antiquated um, social assistance system um, that kind of needs to be left back in the 20th century. Absolutely. Uh, agreed here. And I'm sure you'll find <laughs> that uh, you'll get a lot of support uh, from listeners of this podcast. Tom, I know that the former Liberal government uh, 
did a pilot program on basic income in Hamilton. Now, unfortunately, it was canceled um, too soon. Can you tell us a little bit of what this looked like and, and uh, what were some of the results, even with it being canceled early? Yeah, it was uh, it was certainly a tragedy. Um, we 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 were sub- somewhat skeptical going into it when the provincial government announced that Hamilton was going to be a pilot site for basic income. Uh, we weren't sure it was for real. We weren't sure it was going to work the way uh, they indicated it would. Um, but we met with provincial staff and and politicians, and, and we felt comfortable enough to to recommend it if it was something uh, that would be beneficial uh, for people. And uh, so people were randomly selected. They applied uh, to be part of this basic income pilot. A thousand people in Hamilton, thousand people in Thunder Bay, and two thousand people in Lindsay in in eastern Ontario. And it was Michael. It was it was actually phenomenal. Um, I've been working in poverty reduction for a lot of years now, and I have never seen a program as tr- transformational as quickly. Uh, as, as basic income was for people, people I had known who had applied and 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 were accepted into the basic income pilot uh, saw changes in their lives practically overnight. They were able to stabilize their housing, uh, which was critical. Uh, they were able to eat better. Uh, they were staying healthier. Um, I think, from my perspective, as somebody who's worked in poverty, uh, anti-poverty advocacy, really uh, seeing people dream again, uh, that ability to look towards the future and, and plan, plan ahead, um, which is something they just weren't able to do on provincial social assistance programs was, was really phenomenal. But it wasn't just people on social assistance programs who were, who were testing out basic income, it was also people who were working. So those people I mentioned before, the working poor, who were uh, working maybe two or three part-time jobs, still not earning enough, um, were able to apply and, and many got on the basic income pilot and, and for them it was, uh, it was equally important in, in, in helping to stabilize their lives and their well-being. Many people uh, were able to look for better jobs uh, and, and really uh, get some new training, get some new education, go back to school. Um, it was uh, it, it was a really important test, uh, and sadly, as as you indicated, the pilot was cancelled after about a year when the new provincial government was elected. Despite the fact that during the election they promised to keep it running for the full three years, so that threw the lives of, of people into chaos. But working with um, working with McMaster University, we were able to survey uh, more than 200 of those basic income participants locally, and to a person. Uh, they benefited from the program. Uh, they saw improvements in their health uh, and their well-being, particularly mental well-being, um, skyrocketed in, in terms of where it sat before uh, the basic income pilot. And then, as you can imagine, when it was canceled, it plummeted again. Uh, but certainly, uh, we saw some really phenomenal uh, outcomes uh, in the short time basic income was tested. It certainly fit in with uh, some of the other results we've seen elsewhere. Uh, Manitoba tested basic income in the 1970s. Uh, we've seen more recently a few communities in the United States testing it, uh, Finland, uh, and, and there's other European and African jurisdictions that are testing out basic income now too. And, and, and to a program, they, they all are showing positive results for people. The Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness has a brand new collection of cozy home clothing, We've collaborated with My Home Mercantile, a stylish Canadian small business. 
and designer, Meg Davis, to bring you Helping Home Apparel. By shopping, you are supporting a growing movement that is helping communities across the country prevent, reduce, and end homelessness. Visit MyHomeMercantile.com to order your new apparel and make a difference today. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. It was so disappointed uh, when it did get canceled, because but you know, I can totally understand uh, and be and I was excited to see some of those early results. And, and you know, for those of us involved, there was no doubt that it was going to be uh, it was going to be huge. Now, it's safe to say that the idea of basic income is gathering a lot of momentum. I think it's, it's going to be critical in our next federal election. You hear a lot of the parties uh, talking about it. However, there are some detractors in, in saying that. And part of what they're saying is you, you can't just have a kind of blanket basic income. It, uh, it fails to account for the elements of life that make families more or less in need of government support. So if you have, such as like if you have a child with serious illness or people with disabilities, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, and, and, and there's some legitimate concerns. Uh, I, I don't think anybody I've talked to in, in the basic income movement thinks a basic income is the be all and end all. Uh, there are detractors out there who, who are nervous about the idea because they think it could be a way to, to reduce the social safety net. Um, one of my arguments has been, I think the social safety net in Canada has been reduced so much already, there's not much left of it. But certainly supports for people with disabilities is, is something critical. And there's additional costs for people with, with disabilities. Um, so that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, persons with disabilities are not a homogeneous group. Um, you know, there are specific needs and, and costs associated with those needs that people have. And, and those people must never be forgotten. Um, but I think a basic income can provide a uh, foundation um, uh, to build on. And, and I think that's an important conversation to have. Certainly, it, it's not an excuse not to talk about things like affordable housing or, or a national pharmacare or a national childcare program. Those are all things that have to be complementary to a basic income. And, and, and particularly when it comes to housing, and I know. This is obviously something uh, that uh, that you and Steph would care a great deal about. Um, we need to we need to ensure that there continues to be improved investments in affordable housing, um, because basic income is great, uh, but it's not going to solve our housing crisis. We need legislative changes too. Um, you know, right now, uh, certainly we're seeing it in Hamilton as it is being seen in all over Ontario and all over the country um, in terms of skyrocketing rents uh, that are driving people into homelessness. Um, certainly a basic income can help people meet their basic needs, but without legitimate uh, airtight rent controls in the system, um, 
it may just be an, an opportunity for, for landlords to continue to jack up rents. Um, so I think basic income needs to be done in conjunction um, with provincial government policy, looking at bringing back real rent controls and not just the vacancy decontrol that we have in Ontario right now that allows landlords to basically rent evict tenants at whim and then rent it out uh, for whatever they think they can get in the marketplace. Uh, the hyperinflated housing market it needs to be addressed, um, but, but so do people's incomes. And, and particularly uh, for those individuals I talked about who are on provincial social assistance programs, who, who've been living in the depths of poverty uh, for, for far too long. Certainly over the last generation, um, there hasn't been any uh, significant increases in social assistance rates, but we know costs have been skyrocketing. So people are falling further and further behind. More and more people on social assistance use food banks. Even when CERB was brought in, the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, um, and, and many people likened it to a basic income program, it wasn't available to everybody. It wasn't available to people on provincial social assistance programs. So in a very real sense, we, we created a two-tiered income support system where people getting CERB and $2,000 a month were doing okay. And in a sense, the government was saying, well, $2,000 a month is what, what we need to live on. Um, but let's just forget about those other people uh, on Ontario Works who are only getting $733 a month and living in the depths of poverty. Um, so a basic income needs to incorporate all of that, lift everybody up and not just uh, target certain groups of people in society. Absolutely. And just to shift gears um, slightly, you know, COVID-19 has been tough um, for so many. And I think we're going to be seeing the ramifications of, of this past like 17 or 18 months um, and its impacts on, on the countries, you know, most marginalized. So, you know, Coming out of the pandemic, what do you think are some of the lessons learned or things we can learn to build on or look to build on? Yeah, certainly. And I, I think one of the things we found out during the pandemic, because we did some research uh, with uh, the Department of Labor Studies and, and Department of Political Science at McMaster University, asking people how they were faring during the pandemic. And, and certainly people uh, who had better income supports, uh, who had workplace supports, uh, were much healthier during the pandemic, uh, were able to weather uh, the storm much better than people who were on provincial social assistance programs and, and who were often facing multiple crises in their lives. So as we, as we hopefully emerge uh, from the pandemic, we, we have to think about how to build back better and support everybody uh, to be able to, to meet their basic needs, um, which isn't being done right now. And I think the upcoming uh, federal election is, is a perfect opportunity uh, to really think about uh, how we can engage all political parties in a national conversation about income supports and, and what that basic income looks like, whether it's a national program uh, worked worked on in conjunction with the provinces, whether it's some sort of universal program. We, we already have a couple of really well-working basic income programs in this country. One's uh, the Guaranteed Income Supplement for Seniors uh, that prevents many seniors from falling into deep poverty if, if they can't get enough uh, through other supports. We also, um, the federal government brought in the Canada Child Benefit in, in 2017. And, and that works very much like a basic income and, and supports low-income uh, families with kids. 
Um, but it's that group in between uh, adults between the ages of, of 18 and 65 who've been left out and, and who we really need to support. Um, people who, who may uh, be really uh, badly, adversely affected um, by the economy, depending on where things go uh, after this pandemic. Um, automation uh, is something that's talked a lot about. Uh, automation and particularly in 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 uh, in different sectors, uh, service sectors, and and in the food food sector. Um, so we need to think about how we're going to support people uh, for those periods in between jobs, but more importantly, how to enable everybody to live a dignified life. Absolutely, and you know, I think we all know that there is a federal election on the horizon. I think we recently saw that Trudeau was literally filming campaign ads out here in BC in Deep Cove, which is a very beautiful area to do it. Um, and, you know, so we're recording this in mid-July. By the time this airs, the writ could very well have dropped. Like it's really, there's a sense that it's going to be happening um, by August, by mid-August. So, you know, if, if there is that election, what are some of the key messages or hopes you'd like to share with any politicians that might be listening in? Yeah, and I, I think certainly our experience in Hamilton testing the idea of basic income uh, leads us to believe that it can work. Um, we think uh, we think it is the right way uh, to improve income security. Uh, far less uh, cumbersome rules uh, for people uh, who are currently on on provincial social assistance programs uh, enables people to to meet their needs and and live with some dignity. Um, but certainly basic income can't be the only thing we talk about during the federal election, certainly investment in, uh, in affordable housing and prevention of homelessness uh, is something that needs to be at the top of the political agenda for all political parties. Um, and, and these are things we need to talk about uh, in, in conjunction with one another. The, the income supports plus uh, the federal investments in, in affordable housing. So. Uh, we can get out of this uh, mess we've seen over the, that's been made over the last two decades, uh, where the federal government has has basically uh, washed its hands of, of investments in affordable housing, and, and we've seen the result of that uh, with skyrocketing rents, skyrocketing housing prices, which is certainly trickling down and, and making it impossible for uh, uh, for people to rent anything. Uh, with any semblance of affordability in, in many Canadian communities. So those are the two big issues I think needs need to be talked about. Certainly can't forget about pharmacare, can't forget about uh, the promises around a national child care policy. Um, but I, I think these are all things that people want to hear about. Um, you know, the, the fact is that prior to the pandemic, uh, not too many people knew or cared about the idea of basic income, but once everybody experienced our collective uh, trauma in the sense of, of massive job, job loss, 7 million people going on CERB, there was a quick realization um, that we need to build a social infrastructure in Canada to really meet those needs. And I think a basic income can do that. I absolutely agree with you, Tom. And if they are listening, I hope they take that to heart. And it would be so cool to see the momentum of CERB and, and all the work that you've done, the impactful work that you and your team have done come to fruition uh, as a result through this election. Now, speaking of your impactful and awesome work, where can people go to find out more about it um, and, and contribute if they want? Yeah, 
Oh, yeah, that would uh, that would be great. We're at www.hamiltonpoverty.ca. I can read a little bit about our work, certainly on basic income, uh, but but we've also been doing a lot of uh, lot of activity lately on um, on predatory payday lending, uh, trying to promote living wages in our community. And we will be holding a, uh, a session on uh, how to adapt to extreme heat, which is something uh, you and Steph talked about earlier in the show. So it's certainly something that's uh, of concern right across the country. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. And that was, uh, that was so exciting. And I really do have hopes that uh, with this coming election, that uh, basic income can become very real. I mean, I'll tell you a quick story, Steph, from uh, from Blue Door, mm -hmm. where yeah. one of our, our team was saying, hey, I know that we have a couple guys on social assistance, but they are collecting CERB, right? Because if you remember when people just yeah. applied and they gave it out, but they said, hey, we'll come after you afterwards. If you, you take it, you're not qualified. And she said, but here's the truth. They're doing awesome. Like we haven't heard from them again. They're actually able to have some breathing room. All the things that that Tom talked about, she said. Like you know, so I, it was it was just an income related thing, right? When they had that income, they were able to thrive. Um, and so, so we saw that. And I certainly hope, you know, of course that uh, they'll never be able to pay that back. I don't think. But it's just to me, um, you know, it was a demonstration of how far behind we are, and with a yeah. little bit of extra income how people can thrive. Yeah, extra income with without those barriers though, right? Because that's that fear is we give with one hand and take with the other. Yeah. So I think I think what Tom was saying about making a basic income that works for everyone and that being very inclusive, it's just about building that equity back into the world or, or building it into a place that maybe it's never been and doing something new. And when you think about how much we subsidize like very wealthy corporations, you know, why aren't we applying that kind of care and attention to everyone every day? So, you know, when you take it like that, it's, it's, we can build, we can build back better so that if something like this pandemic happens again, you know, we're, uh, we're in a way better position. Yeah. I, I love what he said around the, you know, seven hundred dollars is good enough for now. But when CERB hit, it was well. You need about two thousand dollars. Yeah. Really, the average person. Yeah. So why have we been at seven hundred dollars for the past twenty years? Yeah. Um, it's such a good point, right? There really is no argument against it. We can't afford it. We can't afford not to do it. Uh, but it's so great to uh, have Tom on the show, and, and let's hope that uh, you know when we have him on next time, we're talking about the amazing results of basic income. Absolutely. Well, another great episode of On The Way Home. I can guarantee only one thing. Next week, we will have another awesome guest. Steph, so great talking with you. Yeah, have a great week. We'll see you next time. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. 
And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.